Due to the sensitive nature of today's material, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of natural disasters, negligence, and death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Six-year-old Gertrude Quinn sat on her front porch, dangling her feet in the muddy puddles below. It was around noon and the rain was still falling. A miniature flood had settled just below her front steps. But the dark and dreary day didn't stop her from being outside. Gertrude occupied herself by staring at ducks and lily pads floating in yellow water. Soon, however, she saw others running through the streets. She recalled her father's urgent warning to head for higher ground, but she didn't know where he was. As anxiety swarmed around her, she closed her eyes and recited the only prayer she knew. Let the little children come unto me, such is the kingdom of heaven. At almost 4 p.m., her father appeared, frantic. He scooted Gertrude inside where her aunt and nurse were, along with her siblings. A dark mist loomed over their home. Her father's face had paled. She knew something terrible was coming. In an instant, he wrapped Gertrude's younger sister in a blanket. Then he yelled, run for your lives. Follow me straight to the hill. Gertrude was scooped up by her aunt as the family raced out into knee-deep floodwater. But her aunt forgot something. With Gertrude in hand, she turned back. It was too late. A huge wave raced towards them, and Gertrude felt a sweeping panic wash over her. In that instant, she was certain this was that something she'd read about in the Bible. This was the Day of Judgment. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Johnstown Flood, one of the deadliest single-day disasters to occur in American history. When torrential rains caused the town's dam to break, 20 million tons of water poured into the town, killing thousands of Pennsylvanians in minutes. Last time, we covered the rise of Johnstown's economy and how conflict between business magnates and locals brewed underneath. We also covered the day of the flood and the aftermath of the tragedy that destroyed dozens of families. Today, we'll dive into three conspiracy theories surrounding the flood. We'll examine whether an act of God caused it or if a conflict between two industry titans led to deadly consequences. And finally, we'll consider whether the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club was to blame for the flood all along, and if they went to great lengths to cover it up. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. After the dam broke on May 31st, 1889, reporters flocked to Johnstown, Pennsylvania to get a better idea of the dam's destruction. Up until that point, they'd been only documenting Johnstown's precarious weather. But like the residents, no journalist could have predicted the aftermath. If you recall from part one, the flood was like none anyone had ever seen. Streets were wrecked, homes uprooted, animal carcasses littered the streets. Immediately after the storm, reporters published columns calling it the nation's greatest calamity and the slaughter of the innocents. Some even claimed that buzzards circled above and rivers were filled with dead bodies. Young Johnstown resident Gertrude Quinn recalled her harrowing experience as she braced for what appeared to be the end of the world. After the waves ripped through her home, she hopped onto a mattress and sailed through town clinging for dear life. Gertrude thought her fate was sealed. But by sheer luck, she was saved by a random stranger. Narrowly escaping Armageddon left Gertrude grateful to be alive, and the flood's powerful impact left many townspeople thinking it had to be more than just a weather event. Which leads us to conspiracy theory number one. The flood was an act of God designed to punish the town for its sins. Off the bat, it's important to point out this theory originated from some of the locals themselves. 
In the aftermath of the flood, as reporters tried to explain the cause of the flood to America, they interviewed those who'd survived. And in those first few days, many called the flood a reckoning. Their descriptions of the wreckage took on religious undertones. Sermons described Johnstown as sinful. Some local newspapers even tried to identify the sin itself, that the man-made dam above the town had tampered with God's natural order. Meaning, because God was angry at the townspeople for messing with nature, he created a megastorm, essentially the apocalypse. This sounds like hyperbole, but remember, for those that believe the stories of the Bible, there is precedent, particularly with one story, Noah's Ark. As a little history refresher, Noah's Ark comes from the Bible's Old Testament, specifically from the book of Genesis. God is frustrated with humanity as the human race was becoming increasingly wicked and disobedient. With the earth filled with violence, God decides the time for change has come. He wants to destroy mankind and entirely start over. His method? A flood. As the story goes on, only one man will be saved, Noah, a descendant of Adam, who has earned God's favor. He's obedient to God despite the evil around him. So God orders Noah to build an ark and take two of every living creature, male and female, onto the boat. Then God seals them in and the flood begins. As it's described, quote, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. Rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. While the rain in Johnstown might not have been 40 days, it did feel as though it rained nonstop. And just like in the Bible, the flood was of the intensity that many in the town perished. Buildings were destroyed, forcing the city to start anew, just like Earth in Noah's story. Given that many of the residents in Johnstown and the surrounding areas were deeply religious, it's easy to see how they might believe this theory. With the idea planted in their minds, some residents wondered if they were to blame. Plus, journalists weren't the only ones touting this theory. As the county courts began to search for the exact cause of the flood, James Reed and Philander Knox, two of the South Fork Fishing Club attorneys, argued in favor of this explanation. From their perspective, this otherworldly event was most certainly an act of God. The lawyers even cited eyewitness testimonies to back up their argument, trying to emphasize that events were out of their control. Witnesses stated the storm was unnatural. It's plain to see in hindsight that the lawyers had ulterior motives. The club owned the dam, and as we'll cover later, residents were starting to sue. In order to deflect, they implied that nothing done by the club could have withstood God's wrath. And since Knox and Reed were also club members, their agenda was carefully crafted to direct blame away from them. Their judgment was coming from a place of self-interest. Plus, there's a larger consideration to make. Proving this theory also requires proving the existence of God itself. For centuries, philosophers and scientists have debated God, but no one truly knows if there's a definitive divine presence. And at the end of the day, 
Even a storm as cataclysmic as Johnstown can be explained by science. A few days prior to the Johnstown flood, a large storm started in California. Heavy rainfall traveled from the west coast to the east, which was normal for weather systems. But this particular storm was moving unusually slow and through various temperatures. So while it started small, it grew larger through each temperature zone. Eventually, it brought the type of rainfall one would expect to see in a tropical storm. Then, over the Atlantic Ocean, the wind changed direction. And when that wind hit the storm, it was the equivalent of adding baking soda to water. It created an explosion of rain right over Johnstown. It was so much rain that it broke a decaying and unprepared dam. The town might have felt like it was the apocalypse, but the storm probably wasn't God. It was weather and science. And even for those who read the Bible as the source of ultimate truth, there's one more point of confirmation found in the story of Noah's Ark. God promised to never again destroy the earth by flood. So on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the truth, I give this theory a one. While that might be true, you can't entirely rule out that God is perhaps behind science, like the person behind the curtain, but I'd agree it's pretty far-fetched to say that God was punishing people for building the dam. Frankly, if it was man's fault for messing with nature, it's man's fault for letting it break as well. So all in all, I'm giving this theory a two. It's worth returning to Philander Knox and James Reed. They were expert attorneys. And like we briefly discussed, they were in the process of defending their clients from lawsuits. Pinning the blame of the storm on an act of God was meant to clear South Fork club members of any real charges. But still, those club members might have in fact played a very significant role in the flood's occurrence. Take Andrew Carnegie, for example, the famed steel tycoon. It's possible that he was the man behind the curtain after all. Coming up, Carnegie makes a play for industry control. Every unsolved crime leaves us with a nagging sense that just one witness, one piece of evidence, one additional lead could change everything. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from Parcast, Cold Cases, every Monday, revisit some of the most puzzling crimes in history. A vast array of offenses that ran cold for decades. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases pieces together the details of an elusive case. Some eventually had breakthroughs that closed the file. Others remain open to this day. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In the 1860s and 70s, Johnstown was a hotbed of ingenuity. It was a major player in the iron world. Led largely by Daniel Morell's Cambria Iron Company, one of the leading producers of the material. But somebody else wanted in on the iron business, an industrialist who allegedly would do anything to be on top. That man was Andrew Carnegie. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. 
Andrew Carnegie used the South Fork Dam's drain pipes to upend his biggest rival, the Cambria Iron Company, and in the process, caused the flood. According to writer Richard A. Gregory, who posed this theory in his book, The Boss's Club, the story of Andrew Carnegie and Johnstown was one of sabotage. And it unfolded like this. In 1863, Andrew Carnegie sought to expand his business empire. Around the end of the Civil War in 1865, Andrew Carnegie was already building wealth through small investments, mainly in the railroad industry. Yet he was always looking for the next venture to grow his empire. He knew that the war had destroyed many of the tracks along the East Coast and that the government would pay top dollar for replacements. Getting into the track building business seemed like a no-brainer. Making railroad tracks requires a process called rolling rails, taking large pieces of metal and using rollers to reshape and flatten them to reduce the thickness. Kind of like using a rolling pin to roll a ball of dough into a pizza. So, about 100 miles away in Mifflin County, Carnegie invested in the Freedom Iron Company, an iron rail mill to lay railroad tracks. He estimated he could make a good profit. Problem was, he had steep competition. At the time, the Johnstown-based Cambria Iron Company led the industry by a mile. It was the leading iron rail producer in the state, if not the whole country. And much of that railway was used to build Pennsylvania's massive railroad system, which held the most mileage in tracks out of any American state until the 1900s. Essentially, Cambria Iron had a monopoly on iron rail production, so even with resources, Carnegie would barely make a dent. To make it worse, Morell was well-established in Johnstown and beloved by residents. He lived humbly amongst his neighbors and peers, and often invested in town improvements. To them, Morell and the Cambria Iron Company stood as a shining example of what success and hard work could look like. But Carnegie was a fierce competitor and yearned to challenge Morell's position as leader of the local industry. He just needed a way in. Enter Steel. Soon after Carnegie started his Freedom Iron Company, he realized that the country was actually moving away from the use of iron in railroads, and instead, more companies wanted steel. A little bit of science behind steel. It's actually made by mining iron, melting it in a blast furnace to remove any impurities, and then adding carbon. Called the Bessemer steel process, this technique makes it sturdier than iron itself. Steel railroad tracks lasted significantly longer than iron, which would need repairs more often. Carnegie decided this process was his way in. He would convert iron to steel, eliminating the need for iron rails like those produced by Cambria Iron entirely. And the easiest way to do that was to rebrand Freedom Iron. He created a new mill that specialized in steel production, Edgar Thomas Steelworks in Braddock, Pennsylvania, about 60 miles west of Johnstown. However, according to the Bosses Club, Carnegie soon ran into yet another problem. He marketed his business as a prime steel supplier, but he didn't have enough raw iron to create steel. 
Morell still owned most of the reserves, which meant Carnegie would have to work with Morell to use his resources. However, it seems Carnegie wasn't very willing to pair with this competition. So as author Richard A. Gregory speculates, Carnegie decided to go with a more inventive route. He would take iron from the South Fork Dam. As you'll remember from part one, In 1875, about 14 years before the flood, the South Fork Dam had already been in a state of disrepair for some time. And while it eventually fell into the hands of Benjamin Ruff, before that, it was owned by a Pennsylvania congressman named John Riley. Riley was the perfect window for Carnegie to get ahead. According to the theory presented in The Bosses Club, Carnegie and Riley were good friends. Allegedly, when Riley made a run for Congress, Carnegie fronted him the money and helped him win the election. For something in return, of course. And in 1875, Carnegie came knocking for that favor. The business mogul wanted the drain pipes, plus all the other scraps of iron that were in the dam, which at this point had been mostly emptied of water. He'd use them for his company to get going on the Bessemer steel process. Riley allegedly obliged and sold the iron pipes to Carnegie. Unfortunately, the removal of the pipes did incredible harm to the integrity of the dam. It further pushed out the sag at the top and prevented excess water from coming out. Imagine a sink without that small hole that accounts for leakage. If Carnegie cared about this trade-off, it wasn't apparent. His alleged plan worked, and his steel mill started receiving larger orders. Meanwhile, Morell's Cambria Iron Company faced struggles of its own. Carnegie supposedly watched Morell's business splintering with glee. Unfortunately for Carnegie, Morell bounced back, and Cambria Iron made it through the turbulence. It was an even more formidable competitor than he might have thought. Perhaps it dawned on Carnegie that it wasn't enough to simply have comparable resources to Morell. He would need to cripple the company completely. Something dramatic would be necessary to truly end the company's reign. By 1879, Congressman Riley had sold the dam to Benjamin Ruff and the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. It became a place for high-powered business magnates to get away from work. Carnegie was a loyal member. And as the dam continued to age, its water levels rose, sitting high above the town where Cambria Iron was based. Which made it even more dangerous than ever. While we don't know the exact details, there is some insight from John Fulton, one of Cambria Iron's main engineers. In 1880, years before the flood, Fulton investigated the dam and found it had no proper way to release water. The spillways were damaged and the drain pipes were gone. Fulton informed Daniel Morell, who sent an urgent letter to the club's new owner, Benjamin Ruff. Morell was so worried that he even offered to make financial contributions towards the fixes. But Ruff was unmoved and refused to honor the letter or accept the offer. Morell and Fulton likely didn't understand why Ruff would show complete disregard for the people in Johnstown. Or maybe it dawned on them 
that the Cambria Iron Company was based in Johnstown. Should the dam erupt, it would take out Cambria's entire organization, which stood to benefit one man, Andrew Carnegie. This theory seems to suggest that Carnegie was actually interfering with the dam's repairs, potentially even with the intention of making it flood. Given how strong Carnegie's friendships in the club ran, it's not so hard to believe that Carnegie could influence members to turn against Morell. When Morell died in 1885, it wasn't the end of the feud with Carnegie. Business was still business, even without the founder. Cambria still had a grip on Johnstown's industry. So allegedly, Carnegie continued to sabotage the dam, all the way until 1889, when it broke completely, flooding the town and causing major damage to Cambria Iron's properties in the process. This is a huge accusation. If Carnegie was the mastermind behind the lack of repairs, it implies that Carnegie was willing to do nearly anything, including allow Johnstown residents to be massacred to bring down Cambria Iron. However, that's an extremely hard argument to make since when the Johnstown flood occurred, any documentation that might prove it, like receipts or sign-offs, would have been destroyed. We'll never know for certain whether or not Carnegie was behind the dam's collapse. And one would think, if he had destroyed a town, it would have also affected his businesses in some way. But Carnegie did ultimately become known as the Man of Steel. He won the war, possibly thanks to the flood, and at least according to the book, Carnegie did have substantial influence on the South Fork Club. Knowing that he was a brazen competitor who wasn't above manipulating his peers and turning business partners against each other, I'm giving this theory a five. True, but I think we need to take the source on this with a grain of salt. The author of The Boss's Club himself makes it clear that he's not a professional historian, and he notes his book's dialogue is entirely fictionalized. He was a fifth-generation steelworker, and his grandfather and great-grandfather worked for Cambria Iron. Not only does he have deep roots in the Cambria Iron Company, he also indicated there was always a struggle for power in Johnstown. I think it's safe to assume he would side with the steelworkers. I can see how the book may not be a reliable history, but just because the author had a personal connection to the story, does that mean we should discount it completely? I'm not sure we would make the same critique about the families of, say, those who drowned in the sinking of the Titanic. That's true. But I don't think we can deduce that Carnegie was evil just because he was ambitious. To this day, no proof has been found that Congressman Riley received any money from Carnegie for the iron pipes. It's true Riley did sell the pipes, but they were sold to an undisclosed buyer. Which means we can't say whether Carnegie even knew the dam was in disrepair. You could argue that he often put other men in charge of running his facilities and potentially had no knowledge of what was taking place. So for me, this theory is a three. We'll never know for sure, but one thing is clear. Carnegie may not be the sole person to blame for the dam's negligence. 
The South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club boasted numerous wealthy men who were just as capable, if not more dangerous, working together than Carnegie alone. Coming up, the South Fork Fishing Club flees the scene. Now back to the story. A little more than a week after the flood, a local chaplain conducted his first service since the disaster. A crowd gathered as the morning went on, sharing solemn stories about their experiences. But when one of the Cambria Iron Company's engineers, John Fulton, stood up and spoke, the mood in the audience changed. He started with inspiration, telling the crowd about how they would rebuild their town, how they would get to work and just needed to trust in God. And then, with the congregation hanging on his every word, he said something that would shift how the town viewed the cause of the disaster. He said he had a report, and it documented his 1880 investigation of the dam. Fulton then said, quote, I told them that the dam would break sometime and cause just such a disaster as this. That was all John Fulton said at the time. He didn't give names or any further explanation. But the townspeople read between the lines. They knew he was talking about the South Fork Club members and deduced that they were at fault for the flood. The revelation took the wind out of Johnstown's residence. If you recall from part one, most of the club members had since fled town. The locals seethed over this apparent lack of concern. Fulton's speech essentially proved it. But still, residents didn't know how the business magnates were at fault. They knew the club kept secrets, but what those were and how far they went back was still unknown. Which brings us to conspiracy number three. The flood was due to the club's neglect of the dam, and the businessmen intentionally covered it up. Initially, the South Fork Dam was created to keep water in a reservoir to distribute to the trade canals. But over the years, the dam changed hands between the state, then a congressman, and eventually landed in the possession of industrialist Benjamin Ruff. Benjamin Ruff built his club in idyllic South Fork, and privacy was key. He intended to keep the club and everything associated with it as secluded from the townspeople below as possible. Even as he put together a list of sportsmen eligible for membership, he kept everything to word of mouth. We now know many of their names. Ruff himself, obviously, Henry Frick, Andrew Carnegie, then there was Philander Knox, a future Secretary of State, Andrew Mellon, founder of a major bank and future Secretary of the Treasury, James Ernest Schwartz, president of the Pennsylvania Lead Company, and the list only goes on. Essentially, this club contained the cream of the crop, men who wanted nothing but the best for themselves and their vacation spot, and didn't care much about the people in the valley below. Which meant Ruff was always catering to their interests. When he first took control of the South Fork Dam, he did decide to make some repairs, but he didn't exactly care about structural integrity. First off, he hired a man by the name of Edward Pearson to oversee the work. Not much is known about Pearson, other than the fact that he was not an engineer. That didn't seem to matter to Ruff. 
What he really wanted to do first was widen the bridge that crossed over the dam so two carriages could pass at the same time. Club members wouldn't have to wait for one another to go across. However, this meant he had to lower the height of the dam a few feet, making spillover more likely. Then, there was the issue of fish escaping from the spillway into the South Fork Creek below. When this was brought to Ruff's attention, he had fishing screens put in across the spillway, which went strictly against the structural recommendations. If you recall from part one, the clogged screens caused a major argument the day the flood hit. Both of these things were arguably worse than general neglect. They didn't just let the dam fall apart. They deliberately made changes that lowered the amount of water the dam could hold and lessened how easy it was to dispel water out. To make matters worse, Ruff had contractors use natural resources from the surrounding land, rock, hay, and mud, to patch any holes. With much of the mountain's natural timbers removed, it created less resistance against river flow, leaving the town of Johnstown exposed. By the time the club's modifications to the dam were completed, the owners had shelled out a whopping $17,000, the equivalent of nearly half a million dollars today. It wasn't that they didn't have the money, it's that they did and still allowed the repairs to be done poorly. For some unknown reason, no experts were consulted on this particular alteration of the dam. While people in the club may have been aware of Ruff's lack of expertise, that certainly wasn't the case down in Johnstown. Many people assumed the club was qualified to take care of the dam. Daniel Morell was the only person who directly questioned Ruff's knowledge, but nothing ever really came of his investigation, and eventually he passed away. After the flood, though, it was a different story. Thanks to John Fulton's comments, residents realized club members might really be at fault and descended on their clubhouse. But before the mob got there, club members disappeared. This certainly wasn't coincidence. Knowing there might be backlash or even lawsuits, club members allegedly convened privately after the flood away from Johnstown to discuss their policy. Many agreed that nothing should be said right away. They didn't want to shoot themselves in the foot accidentally. But if this was a plan to deflect any blame, it didn't work. It only made townspeople angrier. The same could be said if the club was trying to fly under the radar. People noticed they were gone, which only conjured up more speculation and lawsuits. However, as you'll recall, when the townspeople sued the club for negligence, nothing stuck. There were too many factors working against the victims. For example, several personal damage lawsuits were filed in Pittsburgh, not Johnstown, where the club's men held enormous sway. Their wealth and status likely gave them some influence over the local judges. And because the members employed people across so many industries in Pennsylvania, few victims were probably willing to go against them in court for fear of losing their jobs. Then there was the legal process itself. The longer the trial was, the less likely the townspeople became to have the funds or motivation to continue, compared to members who could afford to extend trials for months. 
Apparently, South Fork Club representatives used some convoluted argument of bias to get cases transferred between county courts. Or they paid off local lawyers to prolong the suit. Even worse for the townspeople was that one of their greatest allies had joined the club shortly before his death. Daniel Morell, the Iron Tycoon. South Fork Club proponents used him as leverage. They pointed out his business was in the town and argued that their club would never try to flood it when a fellow member's livelihood was at stake. Plus, why would he join a conspiracy to destroy it? And as we know from our previous episode, the club somehow managed to appear broke in the eyes of the courts. We don't know how they did it or how true it was, but ultimately, the lawsuits were essentially worthless. So the townspeople's lawyers eventually dropped them. And as for the individual members, they apparently scattered like mice after the flood, though there was little proof of who the members even were. Andrew Carnegie himself was conveniently abroad in Paris when the dam broke. He never spoke out on the club. And years later, any documentation of the club's existence was nearly impossible to find. Its details only later came to light, thanks to the efforts of local organizations, such as the Johnstown Area Heritage Association. With no proof at the time that any particular member did anything wrong, attorneys Reed and Knox could argue that no one was at fault. There were no direct links back to members of the club. Ultimately, it's all very suspicious. Clearly, they did something wrong, even if we don't know exactly what it was. But the hard thing is, we may never be able to answer the details of why the club would have wanted the dam to break. It doesn't seem like it would be to harm Morell's business, since he joined them before his death. That does, however, point to a critical part of this theory. Even if there was a larger motivation for the club to harm the town, Ultimately, that doesn't change the fact that it was still wrong. Having motivation to do harm doesn't make the harm itself any more justifiable. That's true. It seems more likely, given what we said earlier about Ruff only making cosmetic repairs, that the flood was unintentional, but still caused by negligence. And that many club members did everything in their power to cover up their involvement afterwards. Ultimately, I'd give this theory a nine. With wealth comes power, and with power, the advantage of manipulation. These magnates had the power and the money to fix the dam, yet chose not to. I agree with this rating. It's a nine for me, too. Based on the engineering report that came out after the dam collapsed, the changes to it altered the safety and capacity of its water. While I don't believe the owners of the dam intended to create such a tragedy, they were neglectful. The flood and deaths could have all been prevented. It's hard to look past the loss that occurred at Johnstown, but in the aftermath, there was some silver lining. After the flood, local courts began to look at land use and dam safety. Because at the time of the flood's liability ruling, the ways in which owners used land weren't considered important. Today, however, lawyers can argue that land used for purposes other than how it's intended, like changing the dam for aesthetic reasons only, 
can be evidence for negligence. Attorneys can also turn to the concept of strict liability. With strict liability, a person is legally accountable for damages regardless of their actions. And it's a major way we hold people accountable. This legal guidance is designed to deter the kind of negligence that occurred at Johnstown, to prevent unnecessary disasters and save lives in the future. So looking to the future, we can at least hope that these guardrails hold. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on this topic, we found the Johnstown Flood, the incredible story behind one of the most devastating disasters America has ever known by David McCullough, particularly helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Drew Dougal, edited by Stacey Nemec and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify.